Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro, and I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. The last two weeks, we've talked about limits, God's grace in disguise. And today, I want to open up a closely related theme, but very biblical and very large and really needs its own space. And I'm calling it Why Great Leaders Are Great Grievers. And today, I suspect, will be a part one of a part two because there is so much to this. So uh, let me just give you a bit of my story on this issue of grieving and loss. I uh, I didn't uh, for most of my life. Uh, I grew up in an Italian-American family. And uh, like in many families, men in particular, we were socialized not to feel, uh, especially vulnerable feelings like sadness and fear uh, and pain. So I, you know, I just naturally didn't go down that direction. And then uh, my family, uh, like perhaps some of yours, had a lot of pain in it uh, and actually some abuse. And so as a defense mechanism, I shut down even further uh, for simple survival. So I just didn't do feelings uh, of sadness and grief. And then I came to Christ at the age of 19 and no one ever talked about grieving. Uh, and so I focused on verses like, uh, all things work together for good to those who love God, like something bad would happen. And I'd say, hey, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord always, you know, Philippians 4, 4. And then in leadership, you know, with your help, oh Lord, I can scale a wall. And I actually prided myself on the fact that I, I, I rarely got depressed, rarely. I mean, I if you'd asked me up to the age of 37, uh, do you struggle with depression? And I would probably say something like, not only do I not struggle with that, I don't, I don't really get depressed. I, I never up to that point struggled with forgiveness uh, because I just wasn't aware of my feelings very much. And uh, I would get hurt uh, by things and I just like brush it off. I, I, I was fine. And uh, I just thought it was a bad testimony to have those kinds of sad feelings. I was like a lack of faith. You're a bad Christian. But God, over time, uh, was using a baseball bat to get my attention. And it was really by the age of uh, 36, 37, where everything fell apart to a level uh, where I couldn't not feel it any longer. Uh, and I began to actually feel uh, such pain that I couldn't deny it any longer. And God got my attention. And that led me to opening up a whole new world to me, theologically, uh, biblically, that I had ignored, uh, changed my whole life. Uh, and the floodgates were opened. And I wondered once I, if I let myself feel sadness, uh, would I ever come out? And not only did I find out that I would come out of it, uh, I found that Jesus was there waiting for me and that there is a resurrection. Jesus is alive and that after death comes resurrection. And so it changed my personal life, my walk with Jesus, my marriage, uh, our family, uh, my leadership, uh, everything I touched, uh, and has continued to only deepen with time over these years. So uh, great, why great leaders have to be great grievers. Uh, I'm going to talk to you about David. But before that, let me just kind of give some broad strokes, thoughts on this issue of grieving and uh, our losses is a major theme in, in the Bible. I mean, there's actually a whole book of the Bible that's called Lamentations. Uh, half to 70% of the Psalms are laments. And a lament means to feel and express sorrow, to mourn deeply. Could you imagine? Uh, Two-thirds of the Psalms are laments, uh, and yet we don't lament. I mean, uh, we don't do it. A whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. I mean, Jesus taught it 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, he didn't. He didn't say blessed are those who stuff it. Uh, in fact, it says of Jesus in Hebrews that he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. I mean, Genesis six says that when you know Noah's generation was so sinful that God was grieved that he had made man on earth and was his heart was filled with pain. I mean, Jeremiah was known as a man of sorrows. The whole book of Job, thirty-five chapters, is him grieving. Uh, I mean. In Israel is a wailing wall. I mean, it's part of the Jewish culture uh, out, of, out of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, we don't have any wailing walls in evangelicalism, you know. And Harvard Business Review and, and leadership books don't talk a lot about very often about great leaders are great grievers. Uh, yet in the early church, even uh, they used to talk. They, they they used to write about four types of tears. You know, tears of contrition, tears of sorrow, tears of gladness, tears of grace. Uh, it was considered a grace to be a, a weeper. Uh, and uh, people like uh, Benedict and Thomas Kempis in church history would refer to tears as a gift of God. Uh, Francis of Assisi was, this is probably apocryphal, but it was, he was said to have gone blind from so much weeping. And again, that's why it's so important for us to, to be learning from the global church and church history. Uh, and we see our blind spots uh, as Western Christians so easily. Uh, if, I, if I asked you, uh, you know, if you were sitting across from me and I, I would ask you, what, what are three stories of sorrow or loss or tragedy that have shaped your life? What would you say? You know, what are, name three stories of sorrow or loss or tragedy that, that have shaped your life. I'd be very curious to hear your response. Um, you know, some may have difficulty accessing those. Others, you may have a backlog and say, Pete, I've got about 20 uh, or 30. Um, you may, I don't know where you are right now, but I've got news for you that moving through your sorrow and losses and grief God's way, uh, will lead you, uh, to greatness, uh, as a leader. It's just not the path that we would choose. Now, again, cultures differ in how they deal with loss. Uh, again, I think of African-American culture or Latino culture or, uh, Native American culture, Jewish, Arabs, I mean, we, you know, Chinese, uh, we can go down the line. Uh, on one extreme, you have like those of, you know, classic British ancestry who kind of no must, no fuss, rational way of experiencing loss of family members. You know, funerals are pragmatic and practical. As one woman said, why she didn't attend the funeral of, of her dead sister said, why, what, her, actually her twin sister, she said, what would have been the point of spending money on the airfare to get there? She's already dead. Uh, that's one extreme. The other extreme is, you know, time stops forever. Places like Italy, my, my background, or Greece, where women would wear black the rest of their lives after their husband died. Uh, and again, in Italian-American culture, and I was actually uh, officiant at one of these funerals here in Queens, New York City, where... Uh, as the as the casket was lowered into the ground, they jumped into the hole in the ground and pounding the coffin, uh, and uh, that kind of drama. That's the other extreme. Uh, I think of Queen Victoria of England, who ruled for two thirds of the 20th century. When her does, husband died at 42 years old, she wore a dress of mourning for the next 40 years. She was obsessed that nothing would change. She made Albert, her husband, the centerpiece of her life. She slept with his nightshirt in his arms for years and made a sacred room that was exactly as it would have been when he was alive. Uh, and every day for the rest of her long life, she had the linens changed, the clothes were laid, his clothes were laid out fresh. Uh, 
And to every bed where she slept, she attached a photograph of Albert as he lay dead. So, so again, you know, history is hail to the victors, right? The nations won in battle, the businesses that defeated the competition, explorers that were successful, and athletes that came in first, and politicians who win. And, you know, we just tend not to gravitate towards losers. Um, and it's so sad is that's the world, but it's also the church. Uh, yet we all go through losses. I mean, we have losses constantly of our youth, uh, you know, growing older, and no amount of plastic surgery is going to change that. We have loss of our dreams. Uh, by midlife, if you're listening to this and you're at midlife, you've had some serious losses already of dreams. Uh, we grieve our limits. That's why it's so closely related to you know last week's podcast on limits. Uh, every transition is a loss. Job changes, you know, moving, uh, learning a new language. Uh, you know, a child going off to kindergarten or college. I mean, these are all losses of transitions. And there's the catastrophic losses, not just the regular ones in life of like, you know, parents die or children die or traumas or suicides or abuses or war or an affair. I mean, health issues, a cancer diagnosis, um, they just go on. Then there's a kind of, I call them silent losses of just people don't talk about like infertility or uh, wanting to be married and not, our innocence lost through, uh, for many young people, uh, uh, having sex, a sexual experience just outside of God's design is such a silent loss or a miscarriage or an abortion or stillbirth uh, or all abuse is a loss. Uh, and then we have losses just about as we move in the Christian life, there are just losses of how we even view God, uh, our ideas of God, our ideas of the church, which are often very naive and narrow. And it's a loss to actually grow and mature in Christ. You realize, oh my gosh, what I thought was true is not about God. So again, and if I had time, I'd, I'd sit down at a table with you and say, how is your, how'd your family uh, handle grief and loss? You know, what did you grow up with? What's in your bones? Uh, you know, it, was it anger, rage, distraction, addiction, denial? Uh, again, my family, I mean, no families, uh, or I'm just going to say no, very few families uh, did loss and grief God's way, and uh, even Christian families. And so, uh, what, what, again, what's so shocking is that this is such a, an important uh, theme, and every pain is different. And, uh, and so, what, uh, I want to just talk to you, what do you do? Uh, do you deny it? You know, couldn't be better. How are you? Good, good, you know, or do you bargain? You know, and some folks, you know, someone dies close to them, and they just replace the relationship with somebody else to avoid... Uh, the pain, uh, you know, some distraction through widespread addiction. I mean, addiction is probably the most popular way people deny grief and loss, uh, whether it's watching TV every moment or going into porn or working 80 hours a week or drinking uh, too much or going on sexual escapades or eating too much or spending carelessly, but something to not feel. And, uh, or, or depression. I mean, so a lot of people's depression is actually not medical. I mean, sometimes it's biochemical, of course, and not against medication. I believe in medication, but some of it is actually a cumulative result of years of minimizing loss and pain and disappointment. And we end up becoming very dull and unresponsive to, to reality. And uh, this, this, this year after year, if you deny and avoid your pain and losses, rejections, frustrations, all that, you actually become less and less of a human being. Uh, I, I, you know, we become kind of like uh, empty shells with a painted face on them. Uh, but And actually, a, a great preventative, a great preventative to addiction 
and depression is actually learning to lament, uh, becoming a great griever. And so again, we look at scripture, we see people like Job venting at God, angry, you know, laying it out. And, and but again, you know, when you grieve, uh, you, we've so lost our capacity to do it because we're so busy staying in control you know, and somehow trying to preserve everything as it is, getting our way, controlling our lives. And so we see grief and loss as kind of like this alien invasion, uh, like you're interrupting my life. What are you doing? Rather than, no, this is part of life that God's coming to me. So uh, all that to say, to introduce you to the cart of what I want to say in this podcast, which is uh, David. David is called in scripture, a man after God's own heart. And in many ways, in we call emotionally healthy discipleship, the core model for us is David. Because you have in David, you have a person who is passionate for God. He longs for God. He's, he's writing psalms to God. At the same time, he is fully self-aware. He's emotionally so aware of what's going on in him. And... Um, of all the discipleship materials we we produce, I would say David is, in, in a sense, a great model for us because he's so broken, he's so vulnerable, he's so raw, he's so unpretentious. Uh, he is a and he's great. He's a great leader. Uh, we think of David as the guy who took Goliath. He was a king. He built a you know he wanted the great giver of money, dancing before the ark. But at the same time, David is a great griever. Again, remember he wrote most of the Psalms, and two thirds of the Psalms are uh, laments and griefs. But in, in, there's a one wonderful story about David that is really worth reading. It comes from 2 Samuel chapter 1. And the context is David was fleeing from King Saul for 10 to 13 years. His life was really hard. Saul wanted to kill him, was jealous of David, uh, and uh, uh, he's chasing after David, constantly trying to kill him. And what happens is uh, Saul gets killed, the King Saul gets killed in a battle. And as well as his son Jonathan, and so you would so they come and report that news to David in Second Samuel chapter one. And now understand the kingship of Israel belonged to David; it had been promised to him by God. Um, lots of people wanted him to be king. They all knew Saul was a lousy king. Most of us, if that messenger came to us and said Saul's dead, and David has the opportunity right now at this moment to just take the kingship, we would have said, "Take it." God's opening the door. It's all yours. Praise the Lord. Um, and uh, But David does not do that. Uh, he actually stops everything. He, he has an army. He stops the army. He writes a lament in 2 Samuel chapter 1. And then he commands his troops, an, an army of people, to grieve. Could you imagine? He, 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 his, he takes his leadership and he, he weeps himself and grieves. And then he commands an army of men uh, to lament. And he writes a psalm, memorize it, and get it. He doesn't pretend everything's fine. Uh, he doesn't avoid it. Uh, and he doesn't know what's going to happen next. But he stops for a full honoring of grief. And then he gives people time, space, and help to actually let to, 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 to grieve and then to let go of it before entering into new things God might have. Because it marks the end of something and a new beginning. Uh, and it just, it just, I just love the way he orders the people to learn it, memorize it, and make it their experience, the psalm he writes. And uh, he knows, David knows, that we're deepened and changed by grief and loss, and God meets us. And, uh, and he knows the worst failing is to deal with reality by being disconnected from it. It's a disaster. And uh, so 
again, Second Samuel, you see him, he says, he, David took up a lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, and he orders the men of Judah to be taught this lament. And he writes things like, your glory, O Israel, lies slain in your heights. And four or five times he says, how the mighty have fallen. And it's, it's a poem, actually, how the mighty warriors have fallen. And, and he, he can't bear to think of the news of the Philistines rejoicing over killing Saul. And uh, he sees all the best qualities of Saul uh, and Jonathan. And then he calls on the women of the do- oh, daughters, of, oh, daughters of Israel, weep for Saul. He, the women are the best grievers. He, he invites them and uh, for this deep loss. And he's consumed with grief in this lament. And I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. He speaks to Jonathan who's dead, you know. Uh, just He feels it, uh, which again is so different than most of us in leadership. And actually, I would say there's a, often a corresponding um, connection of the larger platform people have or the larger uh, influence or power one has a leader, uh, less it seems like often we or they grieve. And uh, it's, can you imagine Jesus after Lazarus's death and he it says he weeps at Lazarus's tomb. Could you imagine Jesus saying, "Now let's get over it. I'm the resurrection and the life. Don't worry about it." Or in in Jerusalem, uh, you know, he says, "I long to gather you," and he weeps over Jerusalem as he speaks to the to the nation uh, at the end of his ministry. Uh, imagine him saying, "You know what? You rejected me. It's your loss." You know, moving to the Gentiles. Or could you imagine Jesus in uh, on the cross instead of saying, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" and grieving. Could you imagine him saying, you know, praise the Lord, you know, I'm going to die, but he is risen. I want to make sure everybody has faith. You know, he doesn't want to hurt anybody's faith around him. And he wants to declare that God's alive. But no, he he grieves even on the cross, even in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, and again, if you look through Psalms, you see you see David writing things like, you know, forsake me not, O God, or, O Lord, for your sake we're slain all day long, or my tears have been my food day and night, or... Uh, my enemies trample on me all day long. And, and uh, you know, so it's just God has revealed himself in history and in scripture and the person of Jesus, but so often God is hidden from us. And there are times when his presence is hidden and he just appears absence. Let me tell you a little story here of, of a, uh, from a book uh, by Nicholas Walterstorff. He was a Yale professor and a theologian. And he wrote a book called Lament for a Son. And his 25-year-old son, Eric, was killed in a mountain climbing accident in Austria. And uh, he, he writes this about his son and, and in this book, Lament for a Son. He goes, we found lists of things that he, Eric, was planning to do. Intentions, proposed undertakings. Eric was bursting with plans. Humanity in full flower. Now it's all gone. All the future he held. Gone in tumbling seconds. His death is things to do that are never going to get done. Nothing fills the void of his absence. He's not replaceable. We can't go out and get another just like him. There is a hole in the world now. In the place where he was, there's just nothing now. Only a gap remains. Please don't say it's not really so bad because it is. Death is awful, demonic. What I need to hear from you is that you recognize how painful it is. And to, I need to hear from you that you are with me in my desperation. And uh, so he just writes of his own struggle. And and so, you know, what, what's so interesting is David, even in 2 Samuel chapter 1, he doesn't mention God's sovereign because uh, God isn't. He's, I mean, God is, but he's silent. And, uh, you know, he doesn't quote 
a verse he's going to write later, as for God, his way is perfect. He, he doesn't do that now. Uh, he always struggles in his laments as God, you're trustworthy and faithful. Your mercy endures forever. Uh, but David struggles. God, I trust you're with us. Or are you with us? And um, I love what Nicholas Wolterstorff says in this about his Eric's death. He says, God, I cannot fit it all together by saying, you know, he did it. Uh, it's, uh, and he writes this. He didn't, he did it. God didn't shake the mountain so my son wouldn't fall off. And neither can I say there was nothing he could do about it. I can only with Job endure. I do not know why God did not prevent Eric's death. I live without the question. I live without the question. To live without the answer is precarious. I have no explanation. I can do nothing else but endure in the face of this deepest and most painful of mysteries. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I also believe my son's life was cut off in its prize, in its prime. I cannot fit these pieces together. I am at a loss. To the most agonizing question I have ever asked, I do not know the answer. I do not know why God would watch him fall. I do not know why God would watch me wounded. I cannot even guess. And he goes back and forth in his lament and faith, just like David. Uh, and I think of the three religious friends of Job for 35 chapters who are quoting Bible verses to Job. They have all the answers. They're not grieving. They're actually you know, accusing. But that's their sin. They don't enter into a grief uh, with Job. So I, I wonder what losses or griefs you might be in right now that are actually invitations for God into a process, a, a biblical process of, of grieving, because there actually is one. There, there's, I feel it before the Lord like David. I honestly pour out my heart uh, to God, honestly. No whole, no bars are, are there. No, I just, it's just open. Uh, pouring it out for as long as it takes. And, and in the, but I do it as I wait on the Lord. I, I'm bringing it to God. I stay with God. I don't quit. You know, it's interesting. I, I've been studying Judas in my quiet time. You know, Judas quit rather than grieve the fact that Jesus was going to the crucifixion. He had a lot of dreams he had to grieve that were lost because Jesus had another path for him and the disciples, uh, which was not messianic power and victory like he expected. Uh, he did not enter into grief, eventually quit Jesus, okay? Um, ends up killing himself, all right, in despair. Uh, what I'm inviting you to is a biblical process of grief and loss uh, before the Lord. I feel it, I wait on the Lord, and then I let him change me in that process, and I let the old birth the new, because you see, there's always resurrection. It just doesn't look like we thought. But see, David grieves in 2 Samuel 1, and, and he goes down into the grief, but he does get up. He doesn't get bogged down. Now, many people are destroyed by loss, uh, it's not that they suffered more than anyone else. Uh, they end up guilty or bitter or despairing or hatred. They will not, they hate somebody, they won't move on. The biblical invitation is to face it squarely. Allow yourself to feel sadness and anger of losses. Uh, and the scripture gives you permission to be honest. Uh, the truth will set you free, uh, never pretending. And we can't change uh, our situations uh, very often, but we can let the situation change us. And there is a grief process, and uh, great books have been written, even secular books like On Death and Dying by Kubler-Ross and etc. But some great stuff is out there, right? and, I, I, and how God meets us. And David is a tremendous example of someone who is a great leader, but he's a great griever as well. Uh, I just want to, uh, I, let me say one little other story here. It, it's from Jerry Sitzer. 
uh, a grace disguise, then actually it's um, it's one of those. Uh, he, he talks about his soul being enlarged through loss. And uh, but here's the story: he, has, he had four he had, he had four children alive, uh, and with his wife and his mother in the car, they were at a Native uh, American uh, reservation in Idaho, and they were on their way home. And uh, he's a professor, a professor at a Christian college, and they've been married 20 years. And a drunk driver traveling 85 miles an hour hits his car head on. And in one moment, three generations are lost. It, he, he calls it an atomic bomb, uh, a dam-breaking catastrophic loss, like a massive flood. And in one moment, three generations of his family dies. His mother dies, his wife is killed, as well as one of his children. And... Uh, Imagine he's sitting on the side of the road after this accident and, uh, you know, in pieces. And so he wrote a book on it called A Grace Disguised. And uh, he writes this line here, which has been a line that I have carried with me for many years. He says, it's not true, therefore, that we become less through loss unless we allow the loss to make us less. Loss can make us more. I did not get over my loved ones. Rather, I absorbed the loss into my life until it became a part of who I am. Sorrow took up permanent residence in my soul and enlarged it. Enlarging your soul through grief and loss. I love that phrase. Uh, and I actually, it's actually a part of our discipleship for uh, emotional, healthy spirituality. It's so core. And uh, every loss that you've had in your life and every loss that you may be in right now is meant by God to make you more, not less, and actually enlarge your life, not shrink it. Uh, you know, a lot of people get sick even physically from not grieving well. I'm talking about physical ailments like cancers and heart disease and our immune systems breaking down and, you know, high irritability. Uh, again, addictive behaviors or difficulty in relations. God's intention through losses, I don't fully understand it, but one of it is it's the way he changes us. In fact, there are so many things that happen when we follow God's path, which is counterintuitive to grieve our losses, when we have so much to do uh, and yet to, to slow down uh, and let ourselves feel our losses for however long it takes, depending on the gravity and severity of the loss, um, so many things happen for us. I'm going to read you a list. Uh, this list actually comes out of the Emotionally Healthy Church book I wrote in uh, 2003, actually, initially, uh, because this was such a, a, a transforming moment for my leadership uh, when I began to grieve, and uh, which was 1996, actually, uh, and actually 1994. And anyway, it's been a very long journey. But here's some here's some shifts that. You will happen in you if you'll take this path courageously. Uh, we have a greater when we do this biblically, we grieve well or God's way. We have a greater capacity to wait on God and surrender to His will. It just breaks us, our self will. We become more compassionate people, kinder people. It was Henry Nouwen who rightly said that the degree to which we grieve our losses is a degree to which we are compassionate people. Uh, there's no compassion without many tears and. Uh, wow, I just love that. It's not absorbing our own pain enables us to enter the pain of others. And and that is great leadership, not just setting vision, uh, not just great strategy. It's great feelers of pain. 
In fact, we become less covetous, less idolatrous, because life becomes stripped of its non-essentials. And you realize the foolishness of running after people's, what people think of you or power or money. We get liberated from the need to impress people. Uh, we can follow God's plan with a, with a new freedom. Uh, you're able to, we're, we're able to live more comfortably with mystery. Like, I don't know. God's on the throne. I don't know what's going on here. It's, I call it a holy unknowing. Uh, there's a greater humility, a greater brokenness. Uh, in life for folks who, who grieve. Uh, there's, a, there's a new appreciation as well for just the sacredness of life. Talking about the changing seasons, the wind, you know, people. Actually, our fears are diminished. Our, we're willing to take greater risks because we realize that, you know, it doesn't, so many things that we think matter don't matter. Uh, we get a new reality of heaven in a new way of that we're just passing through this earth that my life is actually, when I see him face to face in the world to come, uh, a greater sensitivity uh, is developed in us towards the poor, the marginalized, the orphan. Uh, you know, we, 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 we get it. Uh, if you'll grieve your losses, you can grieve anybody's losses. You, you, you get it. And we're more at home with ourselves and, and with God. It's just grieving changes us in such remarkable ways that make the whole process worthwhile. Because do you know what? Jesus is on the throne and he's alive. There is a resurrection. So I'm not talking about just staying in grief. And, and, and I'm talking about waiting on God for it. There will always be a new beginning. It will not be the same as the past. But after the cross always comes a resurrection. And again, that's why in the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship course, uh, this issue of grief and loss is in both courses. It's fundamental. It's the only way to raise up mature disciples. Uh, in fact, again, you can't read it in a book. You have to actually experience it and do it. And so in, in one of the courses, um, you actually you know, do a Bible study on Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and grieving, but you actually make a chart of your losses through different seasons of life, you know, say teenage years, young adult years, middle age, etc. Uh, and what happened and how God perhaps was coming to you. It's uh, And again, our goal, and I want to encourage you to pick up this discipleship kit, if you've not, to get trained, begin to move through this experientially in your life. Uh, it's You just can't hear a podcast on it. You actually have to, have to do the Bible and not just hear about it. Let me close with that guy, Nicholas Walterstoff, and his, about his son, Eric, who died in, a, in an accident uh, many years ago, a mountain climbing accident. He writes this uh, towards in his book, and I, I just found it so moving. He's talking about Jesus. He goes, Jesus said, put your hands into my wounds, he said to, to Thomas, and you will know who I am. And the wounds of Christ, he writes, are his identity. They tell us who he is. Jesus did not lose them. Rising did not remove them. He who broke the bonds of death kept his wounds as I rise, I bear the wounds of my son's death. My rising does not remove them. They mark me. If you want to know who I am, put your hand in. It's beautiful, isn't it? And if you want to know who a person is, put your hand in their wounds. Your call as a leader is to be a mother and father of the faith, not judging, evaluating, ranking. Uh, it's to be a mother and father to those in the world who are wounded who are experiencing loss and that is everybody uh so listen some of you listening you may have some many losses to grieve uh 
they can, it can be overwhelming, and God wants you to deal with one, them one at a time. That's your invitation to follow him today. And you're saying, oh, Pete, I could never. No, no, the Holy Spirit is here to carry you to maturity. We face many deaths within our lives. The choice is whether these deaths are going to be terminal, crush you, or open you up to new life and maturity. Uh, again, I the verse of John 12, 24, the heart of the Christian life is that the central Truth of Christianity is that suffering and death brings resurrection and transformation. And if a seed of wheat goes into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it I'm sorry, if it goes into the ground, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. God has something new for you. Uh, this is a biblical process. And this, this podcast is about growing up. It's about equipping you to live life maturely like Jesus. So let me invite you as we close here to go and send me some questions or thoughts you have, not just on this podcast, uh, but on any podcast you think I should do, uh, and come to me at social media. Uh, I'm on Twitter or Facebook. I'll engage there uh, and send me questions or thoughts you might have, or, or go to info at emotionallyhealthy.org and send me any questions or topics or thoughts you have uh, on this podcast or others, and uh, it's very helpful for me and enables me to, to answer them or, and build this out. But we'll do part two next week on this. And uh, But go to our website, emotionallyhealthy.org. Send in your questions. It's been great to be with you. God bless you. And may you meet Jesus uh, today. And may you meet him in your losses especially and become a great leader and a great griever. God bless you. Great being with you today. You have a wonderful day.